This is an ABC podcast. Hello, once again, welcome to the minefield. It's wonderful to have your company as we try to excavate beneath the surface to interrogate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. That's at least what we try to do today. I think the biggest scandal that either me, Waleed Ali, or my co-host Scott Stevens has ever come across, the AFL's decision to place the first <laughs> qualifying final on a Thursday night, a school night, Scott. That's exactly um, what think, came to mind as soon as you uh, said the yeah. greatest scandal. That's the first thing that leapt into my mind. Oh, well, it was obvious. Mm, so yeah. I was a bit embarrassed that it gave it away, really. But um, somehow, I think, over the next 45 minutes or so on the podcast, we'll figure out exactly how something like this was possible, I think. What do you say? Oh, really? Right, I mean, do we have to? It was worth a crack. No. I thought I might be able to get you to engage at some level. Apparently not. All right, fine. What do you want to do? Well, it seems to me that certain political events of the last, uh, well, oh, broadly we speaking, last two weeks. How predictable weeks, is this? Yeah, right. I know. Yeah, go on. Well, you All know, right. I, I don't mind the fact that maybe many of our listeners would be thinking that the topic for this week's show would be predictable. I do hope, however, that the way that we treat the topic of this week's show may well bear a great deal of unpredictability about it. Cool. Okay. I mean, All right, go on then. So, yeah. All right, let's see how you go. Okay, so as anybody who hasn't been asleep for the last two weeks would know, Australia has seen the office of Prime Minister change hands yet again. It's the sixth time in eight years. And I think by any measure, really, to have that sort of churn in the political leadership of a country in an advanced democracy is rather astonishing. But, you know, we've seen something like this, maybe not exactly like this, but we've seen something like this before, in fact, five times before in the last eight years. But it really is the way that this happened over the last week and a half to two weeks. It's the way that things went down that left, I think, a lot of uh, members of the Australian voting public and, I dare say, a fair few politicians rather bewildered. And perhaps the first among them was the now former Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull. I think you all know what's happened. There was a determined insurgency from a number of people, both in the party room and backed by voices, powerful voices in the media, uh, really to, if not bring down the government, certainly bring down my prime ministership. It was, it was extraordinary. It was described as madness by many, and I think it's uh, difficult to describe it in any other way. That was now former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull speaking uh, at his final press conference as Prime Minister late last week. Well, Lead, before we go in, before we get into kind of the broader issues, the deeper issues of what's going on here and what we might take from it, what in your mind, and I think we have a slightly different take on this, but what to your mind was it that made this particular change of hands, change of leadership. What was it that made this particular instance so unusual? Well, I think it's that it didn't deliver a benefit. Um, really, <laughs> it it in defied sort of, political gravity. Yeah, yeah. So normally there's a brutal sort of political pragmatism to these things. And for all the, the commentary about the political cost that is paid for going through a leadership transition like this, whether it be in Labor's experience, uh, or being the coalition's experience, <clears throat> actually, the political benefit in hindsight is pretty easy to see. I mean, it's hard to believe that had Julia Gillard not replaced Kevin Rudd, um, that Kevin Rudd would have won that election. It's probably likely Labor goes to that election 
and losers. Um, as it was, they didn't quite win, but they didn't lose either and they managed to form a minority government. It's probably true that if Tony Abbott stays as Prime Minister and Malcolm Turnbull doesn't roll him, that the coalition goes to the next uh, election and gets smashed in 2016. As it is, they replace Malcolm Turnbull. I suppose there's a cost that you pay, whatever the transaction cost of changing leader uh, is. <coughs> Sorry, they, uh, they paid that. And then, uh, but but it wasn't enough to mean that they couldn't win the election. Indeed, they did with a one-seat majority in 2016. Um, so, actually, as a public, I know we complain a lot about these things, but we too we do rather tend to reward parties for mm. doing this. Mm. Um, the difference this time is that if you compare it with all the previous uh, leadership changes, they were handing over a clearly jaded, failing leader. Uh, it was deposing that jaded failing leader and replacing them with an obvious, shinier, more attractive proposition that we knew after months of polling and focus groups and whatever it is that parties do to take the political temperature would deliver an immediate political injection, like a booster shot. Um, and so you would see that, that the first poll after the uh, the leadership spill or the leadership change I should say not the spill after the change um, would put the government that was behind back in front I mean in, in Rudd's case uh, I'm not sure Rudd was even behind in the first place actually hmm. but um <clears throat> so you could see that there would be an immediate benefit to that in this case you've seen the government go backwards at a rate of knots because the big protection that Malcolm Turnbull always had which was never sufficient clearly was that there wasn't an obvious challenger that the electorate wanted. There was no yearning for the challenger. And so they kind of end up with Scott Morrison, um, more or less because Malcolm Turnbull in the end wanted a kind of proxy to stave off uh, Peter Dutton and he managed to to buy the time to do it. So it's just, <clears throat> it's kind of, it's the brutal political pragmatism of a leadership change without the pragmatism this time. <laughs> and I think that's what makes it fascinating. But it's also what I think raises this idea of the condition of Australian politics, which this is more minefield territory, I think. Mm -hmm. This question of, of why is it that we seem to be expressing political fracture in this way? And I think there are some obvious explanations that we tend to go to, you know, the 24-hour news cycle, the speeding up of that news cycle, so it's not even 24 hours, um, the uh, the dominance of social media and the polarisation that that creates, the, the fracturing of the electorate and the impossibility of cobbling together majorities that actually mean anything as opposed to majorities of dissent. We've discussed all that at length in the history of this show. But what I find interesting is those are global conditions. The fact of a liberal democratic setup changing its leader every year and a bit, that's an Australian condition mm. or at least an Australian symptom. So I, I'm interested in, in why it is that we do this, not why it is that politics is falling apart. That's observable elsewhere. And those explanations, I think, do the job, at least plausibly. But why do we do this? What, what is it about Australia that, that conjures up this? Yeah, well, I mean, this, you're right, this is far more our kind of territory. Uh, I would just say before we move on to that territory, though, the one thing that I think I'd probably take a little bit of exception with the way that you painted the kind of political pragmatism without the pragmatic result uh, rationale behind the events of the last week and a half is, you know, when you live in a particular media bubble or when you have a particular conception about what your political base is or what people are really yearning for. And then when you look at global po uh, uh, um, uh, positions, uh, global trends, 
uh, like Donald Trump, like Brexit, like the rise of someone like Sebastian Kurz in uh, Austria or the ascendancy of Viktor Orban in Hungary, when you when it feels like a particular ideological uh, expression of the public is on the ascendancy and the wind is at your back. I, I do wonder if there weren't a good number within the Liberal Party that really did expect that there would be some kind of, maybe not uniform, but there would be some kind of electoral bump. There was some benefit in ditching a moderate, moderating, temperate leader and having someone that uh, that was able to get more ideologically uh, more ideological purchase, let's say, let, let's say. So, I mean, I, 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 I'm not entirely sure that it was it was entirely egotistic, uh, or if it was entirely irrational. I think there were, there might have been a limited. No, no, but, but there's a difference there. Even if they did believe that, right? And let's say that they, you know, they inspected the wreckage of the Longman by-election and mm. concluded that in Queensland, uh, Malcolm Turnbull simply is unelectable, and Peter Dutton, they're just mad for him up there. Right. Let's assume they did that, and let's assume that they they looked no further than uh, further south than Queensland to figure out what exactly the consequence of that would be. The point is, they would still have been acting on far less data and far less evidence than parties who've done this in the past would have been. Right. In other words, in every other case, whatever you want to say about them, the case for change was really it was pulled clear. to death. Yeah. Yeah. It was really obvious what would happen. Here, even if I were to concede to you your point, and I don't know that I do actually, mm. but even if I were to, um, we're not talking about something that's even in the same realm. We're talking about a level of data-free faith that makes this particular instance unique. Yeah, I don't, I don't entirely disagree with that. But again, uh, Western politics has been a little bit, well, not exactly data-free, but let's just say, to echo a previous show of ours, it has thrown up a fair degree, a fair few epistemological crises on how one reads the electorate. So anyway- Not I, so much in Australia, though. Not so much in because Australia. Because we have compulsory is, voting and yeah, polling is, that's right. is fairly reliable when it's not looking at a single seat, which we discovered in Longman and the various other Super Saturday electorates. Let me, let me suggest to you, though, getting more precisely to the question you raised, and that really is, to my mind, the most important question. It seems to me that one of the things that has happened for one reason or another over the last 10 to 12 years within Australian politics, and maybe this is something about the disposition of Australian politics, maybe this has to do with the fact that our political system is derivative rather than, let's say, historically or culturally thick. It's something that we've gotten from someplace else. We've sort of inhabited it in our own particular way. One of the things I think that has happened is that one of the essential goods of modern representative democracy, one of the unquestioned goods of modern representative democracies has effectively been not so much jettisoned, but we've lost the sense of the goodness of it. We've lost the sense of our faith in it. And that is the good of stability. Not stability for stability's sake. I mean, I, I would be the last person in the world to say that stability within certain political conditions that might be unjust, that might be intolerable, where there is a kind of palpable uh, injustice or inequity. I don't, think, uh, I don't think that stability is an end in itself, to use the Aristotelian term. But one of the things that the embrace or the acceptance of the goodness of stability does is it accepts the fact that representative democracies have a two-way or a two-directional role. One, of course, is to represent the people that elect or that give legitimacy to the elected politician. But the other thing that representative democracy does is it reflects back in a kind of pedagogical sense it, uh, uh, to the electorate the best form, the best version, the best expressions of themselves, of their 
desires of their wishes. In other words, what stability does is it models at a central, centralized level. It models the type of communal bonds, the mutual deference, uh, the willingness to express toleration, to be fair, to have a degree of detachment from one's fiercest beliefs, uh, to exercise forms of self-doubt and compromise, to, to engage in a degree of playfulness even with other human beings. It allows those virtues within a democratic society to be uh, put on display and then to be reflected back to people who may live in varying degrees uh, of isolation or remove from one another. So what stability does, what political stability does, is it actually displays the very virtues that ought to exist within a community in political conditions uh, where those, those communal bonds no longer function because of the size of the population, because of our distension, uh, because of our geographical spread. And so I think it's that, it's that faith that stability as such is a good thing. It's good pedagogically, and it's good for the instilling of certain crucial democratic virtues. That, it seems to me, is precisely what has been jettisoned. Uh, and when stability goes, when those moderating, tolerating, uh, self-doubting virtues go along with it, then unfortunately what ends up filling up the space is a certain uh, um, is a certain political egotism uh, that no longer that sacrifices if you like stability on the altar of one's own ambition there is so much about that that's really intriguing um, I think that's true uh, especially in circumstances where stability is um, against one's own interests so for example a, a government choosing to stick with its lot in spite of the fact that things are running against it, mm, uh, mm. for example. But the only thing is that I would say clearly that virtue, to the extent we characterise it as, as a virtue, is being lost generally in the electorate. And the evidence for that, uh, I would say, is what I said earlier, that we do reward governments for doing this. Mm. We may not this time because of the unique circumstances surrounding it, but we do tend to reward them. So in other words, I'm not sure that we want that stability in an electoral sense. We don't provide it. And then there's the tension that it provides with the idea that a government is listening and changing. Yeah. So what you make of that, I don't know. Um, we're going to move on and bring in a guest. Uh, before we do that, I suppose I should just acknowledge, I, I'm aware that I sound rather meek and breathless today. I apologise. <laughs> I tried to cover it up. I can't. I woke up this morning and I'm just particularly not very well. So uh, apologies to you and you're just going to have to tough it out with me, I'm afraid. Uh, I'll do my best to shut up, though, and a guest will help us do that. You're listening to The Minefield. Uh, you can do that on the radios. You might be doing right now. You can do that uh, anytime on the ABC Listen app, or you can uh, receive it as a podcast, which is a great thing to do because it has extra content. Um, so you can subscribe to podcasts wherever it is you do such things. You should be able to find us. Scott, our guest. Our guest. Well, look, we've had uh, we've had prize-winning philosophers and dignitaries and former politicians and best-selling authors on this program. I'll confess, though, not any of them really comes close to bearing the excitement that I feel in having the yeah, current I'm pretty guest excited on about this show. one, too, I know, actually. I know. Our guest is Catherine Murphy. She's political editor for The Guardian Australia, or... Now, Catherine, you might like this or you may hate it. I like to think of Catherine as the Helen Garner of Australian <laughs> political coverage. Because, because I know, because the, the vernacular has a degree of earthiness and groundedness to it. But just beneath the surface of the words, there is an ocean of insight, of transcendental reflection. So, uh, Catherine, in a particularly busy week, it means a great deal to us that you've uh, lowered yourself to come on our little program. So, thank you. <laughs> what a build up, Jess. I know, Catherine, my first question to 
news. Has Would any other show possibly be capable of giving you such a wanky introduction? Well, <laughs> well no, it's, it's very sweet. I'm, I'm, I'm flattered, but... Good God, guys! We're setting ourselves up as a trio for a major fall here. So, uh, so you know, like just whoa, Helen yeah. Garner. God, imagine. Anyway, thank you. It's delight. It is utterly delightful to be with both of you. Thank well, you. Wally, did you really say wanky introduction? My God, I just did. Anyway, yeah. But so, now you just said it. So, so checkmate on the wireless, no less. So, yes. Catherine. So, Catherine. Yes. Um, to help us get our bearings here, I'm hoping that you can answer this simple question, because again, Walid and I disagree, I think, a bit on this point. Is what we've seen over the last week and a half, two weeks, is this symptomatic of a condition in and of Australian politics, something peculiar about the way that we practice representative politics in this country? Or are the events of the last week and a half peculiar, particular to a particular condition that's currently uh, inflecting or inflicting the coalition? Uh, well, uh, slightly both, I think. Uh, the, this leadership uh, challenge has been sort of materially different in some respects to the leadership challenges that preceded it. So it has some sort of interesting and new characteristics. But I think, in essence, uh, we're looking at a phenomenon that is now hard-baked into the Australian political system. And that has manifested itself for the best part of a decade. Now, um, there's sort of three things we could think about here. Um, a, a sort of self-fulfilling loop is starting to happen. Uh, once upon a time, the major parties, their, their point of difference with political insurgents of all types was that a major party politics provided stability to the electorate. That was what it used, that was its major selling point. Now, not anymore. Uh, and I think uh, the part of the reason why the major party vote has declined in recent times is because major party politics is no longer projecting stability to the electorate. Another thing I think we can think of in big concept terms, and you guys have touched on it, uh, and it's, uh, but it is nonetheless a major contributor to this, to, to what we're seeing, to how politics has conducted itself over the last decade, is that uh, the instability that has infected politics in Australia has coincided with uh, a major t technological disruption in the media. Uh, these, these two uh, trends have existed side by side. Now, the practical effect of that is that so much of Australian politics and particularly events like the last fortnight are covered live. Uh, so politics is now covered like a sporting match, uh, which changes the essential dynamics of politics. So I think I'm borrowing an idea from Waleed here when I'm saying that politics used to be about deliberation and increasingly politics is manifesting to the voters as spectacle. Mm. Now, another factor, though, I think we can reference, which is sort of hidden in plain sight, but is not obvious, I think, to people outside this building. And that's the, the cumulative impact of these leadership changes over the last 10 years. Now, a piece I wrote for Mianjin uh, last year sort of tried to uh, get to the bottom of what is actually going on in Canberra. We can sit around uh, on programs, wonderful programs like this and, and sort of assess these things at a big picture level and we can, we can become terribly depressed about dysfunction. But what I was interested in journalistically was lifting, lifting the hood of and looking what's in the engine, what's actually driving this. Now, I spoke to a, a Liberal 
MP by the name of Mel Washer, who before oh, politics yeah. is a GP. He's a trained GP. And he uh, he ministered throughout his period in Canberra. He, he really did. He tended to the building in all sorts of ways. If you were sick, you popped down and saw Mel and he'd write you a script. He'd take blood pressures. He would counsel people at all offices in his hour, at all hours in, in his offices. He was sort of literally a, a trained medical observer of a particular workplace phenomenon. And what he said to me was that the sort of cumulative impact of the leadership changes, and these these stretch back to Brendan Nelson losing the leadership to of the of oh, the Liberal Party yeah. to Malcolm mm. Turnbull. It goes back further than Rudd Gillard. We mm. only we think about this starting with Rudd Gillard because the, this is where the prime sort of, minister. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's right. This contagion yeah. impacted an incumbent government, but it actually starts before then, and. What he pointed out to me that I was really fascinated by was the cumulative impact on human psychology of living in a long period of extremists, that uh, a lot of parliamentarians, as a consequence of these rolling leadership coups and challenges and tribalisation within party rooms, were operating in a state of near permanent fight or flight. Hmm. that there was a basic human response to being put in an extreme set of circumstances. So overlay that basic f- fight or flight response that the, that the whole joint now basically operates on uh, much of the time, that sort of adrenaline, hyper-attentiveness, hyper-awareness, and and uh, you know sort of short short fuse, let's call it short fuse. What's happened is, that cumulatively the sanctuary of party rooms and caucuses as places of where collegiate, where things are worked out, where disputes are worked out on in, in a collegiate fashion, right? There's sort of, there was a period where the caucus and the party room was a sanctuary for its occupants, mm-hmm. where constructive dialogue could be had. Now, Mal's impression was that that has more or less broken down entirely, that the that the trust in the system, which is built on politics being a herd sport and, and uh, deliberation being a collective exercise, that that has been really compromised and eroded because of what's occurred over the last 10 years. Mm. And then that makes sense to me of some of the rash, in the moment, poor decision making that we've seen thundering through our system and it's sort of it's just a basic point of understanding that politi- politics is is the ultimate human business i mean it's why i'm so fascinated by it is that it is the ultimate human business and these people are human beings and their own behavior uh, has placed them in quite extreme you know quite extreme territory psychologically practically uh, you know, and and that doesn't get much of a look in because the way these things get covered, we we sort of think about them as mythic battles and clashes of clans and ideologies and personalities and egos and ambition and all these things, which are kind of abstract terms. We forget that these people are humans and they behave like humans under duress, and under duress, humans don't always exhibit their you know, finest characteristics. I just wanted to flag that because Mm. it's not obvious to people. It's actually a really great flag, though. 
because I think it does it, it opens up a lot of lines of inquiry which we might have to explore in more detail in the podcast phase of the show because we've only got about 80 seconds left of the radio bit but Scott I want to ask you then does that help explain to you why we don't see it play out in the same way in say the United States or the UK you have 30 seconds go well well I mean quite possibly because what Catherine has just described is a context in which the essential character of representative politics is squeezed out, namely the idea that you are first and foremost a trustee, that something has been placed momentarily in your hands and your first responsibility is to behave towards that in a way that, dis- that displays uh, fidelity, uh, competence and, and, and integrity. So to have that, that kind of, that survival instinct ratcheted up through the roof, uh, it actually is inimical to, it corrodes like an acid, the very thing that is most central to representative politics, namely, this is not mine and my survival doesn't depend on me holding on to it. And combat, therefore, becomes a reflex yes. rather than a resource, perhaps, or a mode that you might eventually select in a particular circumstance. Catherine, you've done an amazing job in opening up a field for us to explore on the podcast, so thank you very much. Hang around, please do. Uh, Catherine Murphy is our guest today, political editor at Guardian Australia and author of many important things, including that Mianjin piece that she just referenced. We'll see you on the Minefield on the radio next week. So, Catherine, I want to get your reflections then on those international aspects that we just flagged. So I would imagine the fight or flight mechanism has been pretty well entrenched in the United States now for a while, probably Mm -hmm. going back at least till the Bush administration and the fighting over Iraq. But you don't see presidential changeover because the government is structured in such a way that the president is effectively independently elected from within a party mechanism. There are no numbers to, to count. If yes. you like, they cannot simply be deposed. So, so there's a kind of mechanistic explanation for that. But in the UK, we have basically the same system. And I, I, I don't know, I don't follow UK politics as closely as, as I follow Australian politics, and I, I suspect the same is true for you. But I don't get the sense that it's been a particularly deliberative, harmonious place there either, particularly with the tumult of Brexit uh, mm. in the meantime. And yet they haven't resorted to this. Um, whatever disease they're dealing with, it doesn't get expressed in this way. What is the uniquely Australian condition? Well, I think that we have seen a little bit of it in Britain, although people have self-selected. Where where I had my own kind of revelatory moment that uh, the institution of government was a much more fragile thing than I believed it to be was when David Cameron, after the result of the Brexit referendum, had that press conference outside number 10 and just basically said, oh, See you guys. <laughs> and that to mm. me was uh, sort of extraordinary. I know I'm wandering slightly off the point. I'll get back. but No, no, that, I think it's bang on the point. Mm. That to me was honestly, I felt afraid <laughs> watching it. It was sort Why of like, an, a, well, because uh, an edifice, something that I had believed to be an edifice, which is a, a government, an expression of government by one of the you know, great major parties of British history was actually much flimsier than I believed it to be. A seismic event had occurred. Uh, He had made a substantial miscalculation as a prime minister and he just sort of packed up his kit calmly and walked off. And Mm. all of a sudden that government, as, as it had manifested up until that point, 
sort of ceased to exist suddenly and had to be rebuilt and in the shadow of this really significant conflict. Now, um, I agree that they're not offing their leaders every five minutes in the way that uh, we're doing in Australia, but some of the underlying dynamics, though, that we see here are common, I think, to both democracies and are playing out in substantially similar ways. Um, Theresa May and Malcolm Turnbull had quite parallel experiences, I think, in terms of you know, they didn't. They, they their hold on government wasn't as significant or as as durable as they wanted it to be, and that has impacted their capacity as leaders to govern. Now, Theresa May is still there, but I think you know, old Bojo and others are circling around with intent. So, it's sort of it's a really interesting question you guys have raised today, and I must confess I haven't really given it much thought as to why this is a particular Australian disease and not exhibiting elsewhere. I mean, America, we have got the example of a different system of government and not a major party discipline structure in the way that Australia is. In Britain, I don't know, maybe because they're... um, I think someone said to me recently, and it was sort of quite an acute observation, um, that in Australia, because uh, other countries like like, uh, the US and Britain and much of continental Europe are dealing with the the persistent long-term effects of the global financial crisis, right, which was the biggest economic shock uh, since the Great Depression. So there are actually serious, big, deep problems that these governments have had to deal with in an environment of fracture and the rise of reactionary populism and all of that stuff. Whereas in Australia, of course, we, we sort of got a sniffle, but we missed the flu, Uh, We Mm. didn't go into a recession here in the way other countries did uh, in the global financial crisis because of the stimulus, because of uh, because China floated the the great boat Australia in terms of the economy. Right. So different Mm. dynamics here. Uh, It was a British friend who said to me recently, do you think maybe uh, your leadership coups are a function of an indulgence Mm. that politicians in in other countries can't afford? Because, yeah. Look, I don't know. It was an interesting observation uh, and an interesting kind of thought to roll around your head. Whether it's right or not, I'm not sure why it's sort of different in that respect here. But I'm really glad you said it because I've got two theories I want to float for both of you. And you let me know if you think this is anywhere near the mark. One is along those lines, that the problem of Australian politics is actually that the problems that it deals with are so small. And you notice this, or at least I do, whenever you travel to a, you know, a major centre. So if you go into Asia or you go to, to Europe and you just hear the conversations that come up on the news and the kinds of issues that are being debated, they are just so much bigger and so much more consequential. The one exception to that might be climate change. But even when climate change, Europe talking about climate change is a very different thing to a nation with a fairly small population talking about climate change on its own. So the scale of it is very different and the nature of the problems are different. You know, At any given time, it might be about whether Greece should should be leaving the Eurozone or it might be about Brexit itself. There's always some very big element to the politics that they have to encounter there. The other aspect of it, though, that I wonder is, is it to do just with the thickness with which Australians grasp the Westminster system? So, in other words, in the UK, this is all acculturated. It's, it's an organic outgrowth of UK, of British history, and it's therefore become part of popular culture, but also part of 
governmental culture that we understand the way that the Westminster system works and we kind of believe in it in a, in a pre-rational sort of a way. Whereas in Australia, I wonder if we just wear it very lightly. We don't actually think about it very much. It's not part of our popular culture. We don't really understand how it works in any kind of meaningful way unless we make a concerted effort to understand. And so we're quite prepared to break the system because it's not really ours. We didn't really develop it and we kind of ended up with it a bit by accident because um, the British ended up settling here. Wow. <laughs> I mean, there is something about that that absolutely rings true. I mean, if you would say, for instance, that Thomas Hobbes is the philosophical patron saint of UK politics, and you'd say that John Locke is the philosophical patron saint of US politics, surely you would say that Jeremy Bentham is the utilitarian patron saint of Australian politics. There is something about the way that we adopt this particular system that really is, uh, let's say, at arm's length, or let's just say maybe it's a little bit fungible. You know, we can sort of dispose of it at certain crucial moments. Maybe there is that lack of underlying belief. But I, well, look, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm going to shut up there. What do you think, Catherine? Well, I think in this instance, what Waleed's sort of positing there may be true. Uh, and I think it certainly is true that we wear these traditions more lightly in Australia than and, than other democracies do, because, and that's, there's a multitude of reasons for that. But of course, we did build our own version of this. It's not a perfect facsimile of the Westminster mm. system that exists. You know, we have we have actually done our own work and, and grafted this to our own set of circumstances. I think what is interesting uh, to watch is the settling after this particular leadership change. Now, one thing that did, that was, I think I mentioned at the top of the show that there was, there was sort of some different, materially different characteristics to this one, to previous ones, or perhaps I didn't mention that, perhaps I only dreamt I mentioned that, but anyway, in the event, <laughs> I'm mentioning it now, right? So there were, um, there was, the, the thing that was standout different about this one, apart from the sort of sense of despair, uh, uh, genuine despair in the place and chaos, quite quite substantial chaos, was there was this sense of innovation and exhaustion hmm. associated with this particular le leadership change, which has not been the case in every other one previously. There's been a sense of genuine drama, high stakes, um, energy, momentum uh, associated with every previous one that I've witnessed except this one. This one was, and it was partly the dynamic of the thing because what was at stake in a way were models of government, right? Uh, Turnbull kind of ploughed on relentlessly through the whole kind of um, implosion with this belief in technocratic solutions to complex problems. That was his pitch, right? I'm the rational guy, I'm the technocrat. And Dutton represented something quite different to that. And I don't know if it was because that was also playing out as a backdrop that that somehow kind of lowered the energy levels or whatever, but the energy levels were quite low. I've said this to some friends. It's almost like this sort of fine particle dust settled on the place, this sort of fine particle dust of exhaustion. And... It was like the protagonists, the protagonists going in had very clear objectives, right? One conservative who I literally bumped into on the way to the party room meeting said to me, you know, rather grandly, um, so today the party will take back government. That was the objective. Mm. The party will take back government. Uh, the other, apart from the, there was sort of this, uh, this joining up of plotters and panickers, right? That's what sort of created, lit the match, created the crisis for yeah. Malcolm Turnbull. So 
at one level, the plotters, that was their grand scheme, right? The party will take back government. The panickers were just kind of like, oh, my God, we're going to get smashed in Queensland and Malcolm Turnbull's got nothing to say to One Nation folks, so what do we do? Oh, my God, I'm running around with my hair on fire. So that was kind of, that was happening. Um, but it was sort of like, even though there was a dynamism about it because that Dutton push was, was quite a thing, right? They sort of had the cattle prods out on everyone to try and make this a momentous thing. But yet there was this lack of energy associated with it, exhaustion, despair. We, we're reaching, we, we understand that we're self-harming as a, as, a, as a class of people. We understand we're doing that, yet we're powerless to stop it. And I think the sort of poll responses to it have been fascinating because I got our guys at Essential to have a look at the previous leadership challenges to give me some actual data on what the impact has been, the immediate impact of them has been. And in each previous case, there's been a positive bounce to the government of the day by, say, about three points on two-party preferred. This, it's gone absolutely in the other direction. And MPs I've spoken to over the last couple of days as people are trying to collect themselves and dust themselves off of the event of the week, uh, the events of the last couple of weeks are saying to me that the voters are really seriously confused about what has happened here and are, are approaching them to, can you explain this to me in a way that makes sense? Last weekend, I was at the Canberra Writers' Festival. I was uh, giving a presentation on my little book and... Um, and in that very Canberra audience, right, this is a town that lives and breathes politics, public servants, lobbyists, people who work around governments, people who work for governments, right? There's a high degree of um, familiarity with, with Canberra about what's happening in the joint. And to my astonishment, I got about five or six questions in the Q&A afterwards, which were just really simple questions from politics tragics in Canberra can you tell me what happened here? I don't understand what happened. Mm. And that, that again is sort of a bit materially different. We Voters got a real shock when Kevin was gone and Julia was there the next day. People got a real shock, right? They weren't expecting that to happen. But it wasn't, the reasons for it weren't entirely incomprehensible to people. This time, people are really struggling to know what's happened. So whether that provides a circuit breaker of sorts or not, I don't, I don't know. But it was different this time. That's all I can say. Catherine, can, um, if you don't mind, I just want to go back to some of the remarks that you made during the radio portion of the show. Um, there, was a, there was a political journalist who I kind of rather adore. Uh, he was a washed up Fleet Street alcoholic who, because he lost all of his other prospects in the UK, uh, ended up uh, moving to Washington, D.C. in the late 60s, early 70s, named Henry Fairley. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was, he was writing on Washington culture right in the middle of the Nixon presidency and then still writing in the thickest portions of the Watergate um, hearings. Um, he said that one of the great sins and that's the word that he used, one of the great sins that political journalists might fall into in the given climate, since journalists themselves were given a kind of heroic overlay in their own role in sort of bringing down or in heightening the scrutiny around this president. He says one of the sins that political journalists can here commit is not 
simply to increase the scrutiny on an elected representative, but somehow by the tone and the tenor of their coverage to demean the office itself. And I've, I've been thinking about that a lot over the last couple of days. And it seems to me, if we can use the language of sin, there really have been two political sins that were committed over the last week, or at least two. One is that a side of politics themselves demeaned an office. that, And it really is important that a political community retains a degree of faith, a, a kind of hopefulness, an instinctive hopefulness in political office. But the other thing that they did is that they showed that there is no virtue in political compromise. The very fact that on one side of politics, compromises were made and that was used as further ammunition or further cause uh, in order to, to, to bring down a colleague. I mean, those are two, it seems to me, cardinal sins. I'm just, I, I, I'm wondering, this is a little bit inarticulate and I, I apologize for it, but I'm, I, I guess I'm wondering what are the prospects now, not simply from the outside, but on the inside of the place and in the internal culture of the place, to reinvigorate a degree of inherent or instinctive hopefulness when it comes to the prospect of the vocation of representative politics, knowing, of course, that, I mean, just the other night on 7.30, we heard the testimony of Emma Hussar, uh, who was brutalized, I think in many respects, uh, just recently. We've heard news about another uh, um, liberal uh, politician, Julia Banks, uh, who's not going to be contesting the next election because of the brutal character of Bullying the place. and intimidation, I think, yeah, is what she cited. Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, the, you know, all of these things are like acid on the possibility of hopefulness towards a vocation that really does depend on people hoping in it. Well, that's all absolutely right. And I have sort of been positing for the best part of 18 months that, pos that politics is now, is now hostile territory for human beings. Hmm. Uh, and that's not, uh, that's not something I would ever say lightly. Uh, and I think we are, we are in that shadow. And there are very, very serious and profound consequences associated with that, if we think about how that impacts the quality of representation into the future. Uh, but the other thing to also balance against that is that uh, I am sustained, if that's the right word, by people who, who have joined or have taken on political life for the right reasons, uh, people who are motivated by ideas and uh, wanting to make the country a better place, whether or not you agree with those ideas or whether you don't. There are still a lot of people in the system who are animated by those ideas and who come on their journey to Canberra with those set of principles very much front of mind. Also, people who are still in the system who are prepared to take risks in the pursuit and service of ideas. We haven't driven those people out of the culture yet, fortunately. And that is a very resilient part of the Australian political system. And that's what prevents me from sort of falling falling face first into nihilism about about where this is all going i am sustained by 
quiet acts of persistence, hard work and courage that I myself witness. I'm also sustained as an observer, long-term observer of this place, that there is a spirit still, even in this environment where everything works against compromise, which is, of course, the basis of democratic politics, everything is working against it in the system at the moment. Everything is working against it. Yet some people persist with the idea that compromise is necessary, that human relationships are at the bedrock of it, mm. and that the system needs to work to support the, the interests of the voters, not institutions. So there, there is upside. I don't want to sort of convey to listeners of this podcast that it is just a burning ruin and the only rational response is to turn your back on it, because we we can't and should not turn our backs on people who are in the system for the right reasons and who perform small acts of heroism in order to serve the public interest. But I am deeply, deeply concerned about the impacts of the punishing nature of, of political culture and the implications for representation. Well, no more questions, I think, Scott. I think that's the perfect note on which um, <laughs> on which to end. And a wonderful Catherine, demonstration of, of uh, just why it is that Catherine is the best in the business, it seems to me. Indeed. So, Catherine, thank you very much for helping us out. Thank you. Thank you.